Now sometimes in history something uh, happens. Something happens and you know the world is never going to be the same again. All of us remember September the 11th, 2001. Some of us here remember the uh, dropping of the atom bomb in, on uh, Hiroshima. And, and uh, after events like those, nothing's ever quite the same again, is it? And actually, those who read their Bibles carefully recognise that phenomenon because the Bible too describes the whole of history and then, but then focuses in particular on a number of turning points, a number of key moments after which nothing is ever going to be the same again. The Bible doesn't read the history of the world quite like we do, though kingdoms rising and falling, wars and rumours of wars, bombs and atrocities are, are actually the, the background against which some really important events are unfolding. The Bible describes them. God's history of the world from beginning to end and particularly shows us some turning points. The writing of Isaiah is one of those turning points. When Isaiah finally put down his pen, those who read his words and understood them knew that the world had changed. Their understanding of the world had changed. The book of Isaiah functions in God's history as a sort of massive bombshell. But this bombshell doesn't kill and maim and terrorise. It actually just blows apart our two-dimensional understanding of the world. It opens up new dimensions, new wonders, new glories, new hope, which to be honest, up to that moment, the Bible hadn't really seen. It revolutionises our understanding of God and of his world and of the future as, as dramatically as Einstein's theories revolutionised physics. I want to explain that to you so that you understand um, where this part of Isaiah fits into God's great story. We need to go actually right back to the beginning. To the beginning of the world, to the beginning of what the Bible speaks of. In the beginning, the Bible um, portrays God's creation as thoroughly good. Our relationships with one another, our relationship with the environment, and our relationship with God, all of them harmonious and good. But the Bible says the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, walked away from that. They disobeyed God, and actually they marred forever our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the environment. You know, a, a family row, global warming, and an unanswered prayer all have the same root. They're all rooted in the fact that this world is not as it should be, not as it was meant to be. It is, says the Bible, 
cursed by our rebellion. But from the very earliest times, God promised something different. God promised that he would put things right. And he chose one man, Abraham, and told him that his offspring would bless the whole world. The plan at that point was very simple. Abraham's descendants would be a model community under a model leader, a nation called Israel. And through that nation, all the world would be blessed. That's what God said. And it almost worked. The high point was under King David. The nation then found found peace and prosperity. It enjoyed the presence of God. And it began that process of blessing all the nations to the ends of the earth. But the Bible says it did not work. It just didn't. In particular, David... King David, the greatest king, the leader of Israel at its highest point, showed himself to have feet of clay. His famous sin with Bathsheba combined adultery and murder and from then on, it was pretty clear it was not going to work. Israel was not going to bless the nations. The curse of Adam and Eve is not going to be reversed. The rest of the story of the Old Testament, at least the historical part, are the story of that hope disappearing like water through sand. Israel declines into... um, internecine warfare and uh, all sorts of terrible things and it becomes clear that it's not going to be long before God says enough is enough and finally decides to scatter these people who are the hope of the world to scatter these people into the nations. The world has lost its hope The curse of Adam and Eve seems to be absolutely unbreakable. As we read through the story of the Old Testament, we are meant to feel the horror of that. Everything that we long for, that the Bible promises us, seems destined to turn to failure and misery. It's into that that Isaiah drops his bombshell of a book. Isaiah lived at the time of of decline in the nation of Israel when it was absolutely clear that Israel was a failed nation and had failed in its mandate from God. But Isaiah sees that God is still going to keep his promise. He's going to actually raise up another king, like David, who will not fail. The first uh, 39 chapters of uh, the book of Isaiah have this as their central underlying theme. 
But the bombshell is even greater than that. The bombshell, the thing that Isaiah reveals that makes, makes it clear that actually the world is never going to understand itself in the same way again. The bombshell is that the king will be God. He will be human, but he'll be God too. Isaiah 7 verse 14, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or Isaiah chapter 9 verses uh, Uh, 6 and 7, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The human race needs a leader to have any hope, but no human leader can do it, so God will do it as a human being, says Isaiah. This is a a revolution of Einsteinian proportions. But there's another problem too that Isaiah begins to see the solution to. Israel was not only supposed to lead the world following its great king um, as as it called all people to God. Israel was supposed to serve the world too. She was supposed in particular to offer sacrifices for the sins of the world. She was supposed to be God's servant to the world. And she never got near to living up to that. Isaiah 40 to 55 explores Israel's uh, failure as God's servant for the nations, but also promises another servant for those nations. But this servant will perform the ultimate service. He will offer himself as a sacrifice. He will offer himself to die for the sins of the world so that the world can be forgiven by God. Isaiah only hints at it, but... uh, This servant is the same person as the king in the first 39 chapters. But here's what the Isaiah says about him now. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's in Isaiah 53. This servant is going to take the sins of the world 
on himself. God leads us as a king. But this same king, this God-man, serves us through dying for our sins. See, up to that point in the Bible, uh, in the the unfolding story of the Bible, actually history had been heading towards a deeply depressing conclusion. God had commissioned Abraham's descendants to bless the world, to reverse this curse, but they could not do it. We cannot do it. We cannot restore our relationships with one another. We cannot live in harmony with the environment. And most especially, we cannot live in harmony with God. Look at any newspaper, in any day, in any country, and you will see those truths played out in story after story after story. Our world as a whole is as far away from the bliss of the Garden of Eden as it had ever been. But nearly 3,000 years ago, Isaiah had started to point us to a solution. God himself is going to do it. Mankind can't, God can as a man. And then we get to Isaiah 56 to 66. What contribution does this last section of Isaiah make towards that story? As we go through the series, we will allude back, we will find ourselves looking back again and again to what Isaiah has already told us. I've uh, just introduced it now. But 56 to uh, 66, what uh, is that telling us? Well, it tells us at least three big things that again we're going to see over uh, coming up a number of times over these subsequent weeks. And I have to say, since this is relatively new to me, I'm uh, looking forward as I study it in more detail for you and with you to uh, finding other things as well. But so far, this is what I've found and noticed that I want to uh, give you, to orient you in these uh, last ten chapters of Isaiah. The first thing that uh, Isaiah 56 to 66 says is that God does it all. He does it all by himself without anyone else's hope. Help. Uh, Twice he makes that that absolutely explicit in these last chapters. Isaiah 59 verse 16 we read He saw there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. As we've we've absorbed what Isaiah has said so far, we can see how Isaiah 56 to 66 is bringing that together. It has to be God as a king. It has to be God as a suffering servant who will do it because no human being has to do. It has to be his own arm that works salvation for him, his own righteousness that sustains him. And then at the end in chapter 63, verse 5, um, God himself speaks and says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support 
so my own arm worked salvation for me. God is the king. God is the servant. God does it all from beginning to end. He's the one who personally makes sure that the promises he gave to Abraham, that the curse that has lain on all of humanity and all of creation since the first uh, sin of Adam and Eve, that that curse will be broken, he personally set out to break it himself. Because people can't. Secondly, Isaiah 56 to 66 starts to spell out in more detail exactly what God is promising us. And in short, he promises us everything we've ever dreamed of. Our relationship with God is going to be properly and fully restored. Our relationships with one another are going to be properly and fully restored. Our relationship with God's world is going to be perfected. And the only way that he can do that ultimately is ultimately to actually create what Isaiah calls a new heaven and a new earth. To actually recreate the physical universe. Behold, he says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. It is going to be so extraordinarily better that actually this present, broken, cursed, fallen, temporary, death-ridden life will seem like just a temporary blip, a forgotten moment as we enjoy resurrection life, life beyond death, solid, physical Resurrection life in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no longer any curse. That is perhaps the third great bombshell that Isaiah gives us. God's going to have to make the world new to contain what he's going to do. And then the, uh, the third thing that will come up again and again and draws us towards our passage this morning, Isaiah 56. God calls us to live in the light of that. He calls us to live as people who have embraced that and are waiting for that. One commentator says 56 to 66 is characteristics of awaiting people. It hasn't quite happened yet. We begin to get a taste of it, but it hasn't quite happened yet. But it will happen. 
God is going to break that curse then, which presently sits over the whole of his creation. He's going to do it himself. He's going to do it by recreating his universe. And he calls us to live in response to that. Isaiah 56 begins then with a great call in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Our our commitment to justice and righteousness is not going to save the world. That was always a false hope because we are just too imperfect. But if we want to appropriate to ourselves, for ourselves, the salvation that God offers us, if we want to be confident that the hope he offers is our hope, we must follow Christ. We must do what is right. Isaiah actually, uh, interestingly, includes Sabbath observance in this verse too. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, keeping his hand from doing any evil. The New Testament uh, I'm persuaded, makes it plain that the details of Old Testament religious practice are no longer required by Christians, including actually religious observance of the Sabbath. But the principle of a life consecrated to God, a life resting in God, a life set apart from the futile busyness of the world that we live in, still needs to be lived out lived out with vigour and enthusiasm as well. The word um, which is in, a couple of times in uh, this passage is translated keep actually appears five times in uh, Isaiah 56, 1 to 8 and only another seven times in the whole prophecy of Isaiah. It means hang on to or carefully observe or guard. Verse 1, keep Justice. Verse 2, keep the Sabbath. Verse 2 again, keep your hand from doing evil. Verse 4, keep my Sabbaths. Verse 6, keep the Sabbath. Hang on to what is right. Hang on to your relationship with God, says Isaiah. Hang on. Seek justice. Seek rest in God. He has promised you something great. Hang on. I don't know what that means for you. Most of us here are Christians. And to be honest, some of us may be coasting. Some of us may be disappointed on the verge of giving up. Some of us may be feeling frankly rebellious this morning. Some of us may be enjoying life so much that we're losing any real sense of urgency about following God because, frankly, the rest of life is such fun. Some of us may be devoting ourselves to money or to our reputation or to finding a partner or to a thousand and one other things in a way which actually places God on the sidelines for now. I'll come back to him later.
Isaiah says, step back for a moment. You are offered treasure beyond your wildest imaginings. And he says, you're offered it soon. My salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. It is much nearer than you think. Young people here, your, your life is a vapour. It is terribly short. Ask the older people here. You, know, you, you think that the people who sit at the back there, they were young a million years ago, don't you? They will tell you, if you ask them, they were young yesterday. And as someone who's halfway there, I, I know how that feels. Life just goes. Hang on to God now. Enjoy resting in Him now. Live for Him now. And some of us here, we're not yet Christians. Well, let me just briefly start to unfold for you a little bit more from this passage what God offers. And we will see it again and again in subsequent weeks. So keep coming back to see more. But let's just look at this passage in Isaiah 56 for a little while. Look at what God, what um, Isaiah says God does offer us. Look at the depth, first of all, of the blessing that God offers us. Verses 3 to 5. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let not one of any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Isaiah picks out eunuchs, it seems, for two reasons. For one thing, they obviously could have no children. They were, as Isaiah puts it, dry trees. That was not only a personal tragedy, as it might be today, it actually was, was, a, was a deeper tragedy because it meant their family lost its place in God's great plan. There was no inheritance. Their life then in Israel was pointless and empty and worthless. But also he seems to pick out eunuchs because they, are, they were in Israel, they were barred from entering the holy parts of the temple and therefore in a very real, practical way they were separated from God. But here, God invites them right into his temple. Do you see that? I will give them within, within my temple and its walls, he says, a memorial and a name. Verse 5. And he promises them actually a reputation and a place in his great plan, a purpose for their life, a memorial and a name, as he puts it. 
And then he said something massively important to us that we must see. He says that is better than sons and daughters. It's hard for some of us to imagine the magnitude of that statement, isn't it? In our world, some of us want children, some of us don't particularly want children. For some of us it's a big deal, for some of us it's not. In Isaiah's world, everyone needed children. But, says Isaiah, what I'm offering you is better. Remember Jesus said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. A hundred times better it is, says says Jesus if you're prepared to follow me, and you get eternal life on top. Better than anything you can imagine, he says. Now, not without its trials, not without its great difficulties, not without pain, not without difficulty, not in some senses without it becoming more difficult if you choose to follow God. But it is better. Astonishingly better. Better than the narrow, dull, limited, empty, pointless futility of life without God. Better than sex, better than money, better than the whole world's applause, better than the best of families. He's offering resurrection life. He's offering an eternity of love and joy and peace and contentment in this new creation. And it is infinitely better, says Isaiah. than anything this world can offer. That is the depth of the blessing that God is offering people who follow him. It is better than the best thing you can imagine. And then look at the breadth of what is on offer. Very briefly, it is for everyone. Verse 6. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. Jesus, when he came along, he actually drove a group of narrow bigots who thought that God's blessing was only for them, out of the temple, quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All nations, everyone. 
Jesus described himself on one occasion as the good shepherd and then alluded to Isaiah 56 verse 8 when he said, I have other sheep who are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. That is you. If you've heard the voice of God in what has been said this morning. No nation is excluded. No person is excluded. If we listen to the voice of Jesus, then we can inherit that blessing. It's promised. So will you take that step? We've seen the grandeur of the story that the Bible tells us. The story in which the present curse that now rests over all creation will be broken by God finally when he creates a new heaven and a new earth and gives resurrection life to his people. We've seen the call. Follow me. Keep my commandments. Rest in me. But we need to take a step. None of us is excluded in principle. None of us can have that unless we are prepared to say, yes, I will. I will follow. I will, in the words of verse 6, bind myself to the Lord to serve him and to love him. Then, in the words of verse 7, God promises he will give you joy and an inheritance better than anything you can imagine. Will you do it? If you've been a Christian for some time, will you hang on? Will you commit yourself wholeheartedly to this as the central reality of your life? If you're not that yet there, will you take that step? Or if you're not ready to take that step, will you talk to a Christian? Will you come back here on subsequent weeks to hear some more? Will you ask God to open the eyes of your heart? Will you do it? We want to encourage people after the service to be praying for one another. Find someone to pray with you if you feel you need to. Feel free to come and talk to me. But don't miss out. Isaiah is portraying, actually, perhaps the greatest bombshell that has ever dropped in history in terms of opening up our minds to what God offers. Take it.